Good morning again. Ephesians chapter 1 in your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 1, looking at verses 3 through 6 again. We were in this passage last Sunday in a message that I ended up taking my wife's advice on and splitting into two parts. She's told me that before, that I should, uh, when I get done preaching a message, she sometimes says, that should have been a two-parter, meaning it was too long. So this is the second part, Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. The title for the sermon series that we are entering into here in Ephesians, you can see it on the screen there, is Upward, Inward, Outward, Forward, the Church in Ephesians. As a church, we have an, uh, an upward calling to the glory of God in Christ. We have inward love and care for each other while we show an outward example of the joy of Christ to the world as we move forward with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this two-part message deals with what we started last Sunday and what we continue with this Sunday deals with that first one, the upward glory of God. The upward glory of God. People often ask, why does this topic, well, it's, it's challenging, it's confusing sometimes, but why does the topic of election and God's sovereignty in salvation matter? Does it even matter that we try to understand these things? Well, honestly, I think it is of primary importance. Why? Because Paul puts it as first in his list of the spiritual blessings that we have obtained in Christ. Say, okay, but why does it matter? Because it matters who gets the glory in our salvation. And that matters throughout life. It matters throughout the rest of your life. Answering a question like this, will your glory be in the God of all creation who has chosen you to be saved before the foundation of the world, even when you did not deserve it? Is that where your glory will be? Or will you reserve a little glory for yourself? Will I keep a little bit back for me? If our theories regarding this topic cause us to carve out a place to glory in ourselves, our theories are wrong. That's as blunt as I can possibly be. Why? Because Galatians 6.14 says, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. That's what we glory in. The glory of God is at stake. And it is at stake in our, how we view salvation. And it is at stake throughout the rest of our lives. And if I carve out a little bit of glory for myself and my salvation, I will be tempted throughout the rest of my life to carve out glory for myself. Because I know me. I want to be careful to keep the glory of God as primary because I know in my sinful nature, I am prone to carve out glory for the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. That's just the truth of it. That's a battle I face, and I think if you're honest, you will face that in your entire life is that I want to take a little bit of that glory. I want to say it's me. I want to say I did it. I want to say that, but we can't. We must say it was by the grace of God. By the grace of God. I want to review here the three points that we covered last week. 
The plan of God for the church. This is part two. These are the three things we covered last week. Seven glorious truths about election and predestination. Number one, we saw that election and predestination are biblical words and doctrines. Ephesians 1 is not a one-off place that we might be taking out of context. This theme of God choosing who will be saved is throughout Scripture. It is all over Scripture. And if you weren't here last week and didn't hear last week's message, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. You can listen on the podcast. You can listen to it on the YouTube channel. And you'll see all the different Scriptures that we walked through. And we're going to walk through a bunch more of them today. And you're going to see this to be true even more. It's a biblical word and it's a biblical doctrine. Secondly, election and predestination are always presented positively in Scripture. Paul presents them here in Ephesians 1 as glorious spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. He doesn't say, oh, oh, we're coming to something. You kind of got to do an end around on it because we don't not quite. He attacks it head on and he says, praise God for this because without it, you wouldn't be saved. The third thing we covered last week was election and predestination are God's choice, not ours. It is God's choice. It is not our choice. And whereas I make the wrong choice, God never does. Never once has he ever made the wrong choice. Never once has he led us in the wrong direction. Never once has he failed us in any way. That's why my faith and my glory are in God. I want to read for you so that we're kind of back into the flow of the passage. Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 6. Would you look at that, please? Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. What a passage of scripture. What a passage of scripture. Today, I want to continue talking about this topic, seven glorious truths about election and predestination. And number four is this, and this comes right out of the text. Election and predestination make God the initiator of salvation. God is the initiator of salvation. He chose us. That's about as far as we got last week, honestly. We got into verse 4, and we said, He chose us. We talked about a few other phrases and stuff, but for the most part, it's God chose us. His sovereign election of us is the first factor in our salvation. Therefore, that puts God in charge, not us. Is God in charge or is He not? He is in charge of salvation. He is in charge of this world. He is in charge of the rest of our lives. God is not a God who sits in heaven just hoping against hope that people come to him, wringing his hands, hoping he's done enough to woo us to him. No, the Bible's very clear. He has chosen us in him, and therefore he comes to us and brings us to him. It's a work of God. Romans 8 verse 30 says, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. So whom he has chosen to work in, he calls them to salvation. God is in charge of this process. God is at work. We were, I was at the back door last week, and Morris Failer on the way out, he said, Don't forget about Lydia. Don't forget about Lydia. And I said, you are right. I've got to talk about Lydia. In Acts 16, 14, 
Lydia and her, her friends are down by the river, and Paul comes and he speaks to them. And he speaks to them about the gospel, about salvation. And it says these words in Acts 16, 14. It says, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. That's how someone is saved. When God reaches down and sovereignly chooses to open their heart, Lydia, having been chosen by God, therefore God works in her heart to bring her to belief in salvation, to bring her to belief in Christ. No one will be saved unless God works in their heart to bring them to Christ. Not one person can come on their own. God has to work in that heart. Why does God have to work? Because according to Ephesians 2, which we will get into in a few weeks, according to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, all humanity is dead in their sins, dead, walking after the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. We are by nature children of wrath. We are dead in sins. How can a dead person come to Christ? They can't. They must be brought to life to believe. And Ephesians 2.5 says that we were made alive to God when we were dead in sins. See, we were dead in sins. God steps in, makes us alive. He regenerates us, the Bible says, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's one of the Holy Spirit's works in salvation. He regenerates us whereby he takes what was dead and he makes it alive to God so that we can believe in him. We see that in Titus 3. Verse 5, so Lydia, chosen by God before the foundation of the world, therefore in God's timing, which is always different, sometimes it's early, sometimes it's middle, sometimes it's late in, in a person's life, God works in her heart to bring her to faith in Christ. See, salvation is not me coming to God. It is God coming to me. Salvation is not me initiating and God responding. It is God initiating and me responding. That puts God in his proper place and it puts me in my proper place. It's exactly what Jesus said in John 6, verse 44. He said, no one can come to me. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. The father must draw. And then it says, and I will raise him up at the last day. I think that's, that's a great phrase. Notice the last phrase, I will raise him up on the last day. The one whom the father has chosen, he has drawn to himself and he will raise him up on the last day. What does that mean? Election puts God in control of the beginning of salvation and it puts God in control of the end of salvation. Because God chooses, he draws, he secures, and he will raise you up in the last day. Belief in the sovereignty of God and salvation is intricately connected to our eternal security. Why? Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What God begins, God finishes. What I begin... I might mess up on the way. Would you agree? I'm talking for myself. But if I, if I started, if I began the work of salvation in me, I'll probably end it somewhere in me along the way. But if God chose me, he began a good work in me, he will complete it in me from start to finish. 
And I am much more confident in God choosing me than I am in me choosing him. I know me. I know me. But I also know God. And what he does is perfect. A lot of people that don't believe in the sovereignty of God for salvation also do not believe in eternal security in Christ. John 6, 39, Jesus says again, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, same phrase that we saw in John 17, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. So all that the Father has given the Son, Christ won't lose on the way, and he will raise them up. So he raises us up. He secures us. Eternal security is a work of God in us. Every single person that the Father has given to the Son will be brought to complete and final salvation. He will not lose one of them. Would you take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 3? Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, is a terrific verse on eternal security. We are secure in Christ. Second Peter 3, verse 9. Speaking to believers here, Second Peter is written to believers. In chapter 3, Peter is speaking to those believers who think that the promise of God is not going to happen. False prophets have come in and have taught them wrongly. And they're starting to question whether or not the promises of God will be true, whether or not they will be brought to full and complete salvation. And speaking to believers in 2 Peter 3, 9, Paul, Peter says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Now we have to ask ourselves a question so that we interpret this verse right. Who is the us? Who is Peter talking to? Believers. Peter is writing to believers who are worried that the promises of God regarding salvation are not going to come true. And so he says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering toward us, towards the believers, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Since he is talking to believers, it would not be wrong to insert in there, not willing that any of us, the ones he's talking to, not any of the believers should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is eternal security in Christ. That what God has started in us, he will complete in us. That everyone whom God has chosen from before the foundation of the world will come to complete and final assurance, uh, final salvation. Scripture assures that that will happen. Why? Because salvation is the work of God in us. Salvation is the work of God in us. All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ our King. We sang a song earlier that talks about this. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. He is able to do that. He has all power. He can secure you for salvation. And he does. Jesus said in Matthew 16, he said, I will build my church. Please note the, assur the assurance we have in that statement. Jesus said, I will build my church. Jesus did not say, hey, I have a good idea, and I sure hope other people like it as much as I do. No, he said, I will build my church. God is never subservient to the whims and wills of people. He isn't. 
Jesus said he's going to build his church. Guess what he's going to do? He's not just going to sit around and hope that people come. He's going to build his church. He's going to go to them, draw them to himself, and build his church. That's a promise from Christ himself. Now, notice in Ephesians 1, we are not just chosen. We are chosen in Christ. He says he chose us in him. He chose us in him. We are chosen in Christ. We are chosen because of Christ. We are chosen to be in Christ. He does, God does great things for us. Why? Because of Christ. Because of the love that he has for his son. So think about this. He chose us in him. We are in Christ. Now, go back to what we read earlier in John 17. That's where that comes in. John 17 comes in, and Harold Wirt turned me on to this passage last, uh, last Sunday. He said, Can you, have you noticed in John 17 how many times it says the, the, the Son or the Father has given people to the Son? And so I went and re- read it, and I said, it's all over there, seven times. And that's what he's talking about here. So we saw in our scripture reading, seven times Jesus says that the Father has given people to him. Who are those people? Who are those people? that the Father has given to the Son, and that verse 2 in John 17 says, they are the ones that have eternal life. They're none other than the ones whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world. The ones who will inherit eternal life. Why? Because we were given as a love gift from the Father to the Son, and through God's sovereign choice, we are placed into Christ. We are Christ's. And then Jesus says in John 6, 37 to 39, that these are the ones, the ones the Father has given to me are the ones that will come to me and the ones that he will raise up on the last day. We are chosen by God to be in Christ who died for us that we might be eternally saved from sin, death, and hell. Praise God. Now notice this too. We're not just chosen. We're chosen in Christ And at the end of verse 5, excuse me, in the end of verse 6, it says that we are chosen in Christ and we are made accepted in Christ. This is a powerful phrase. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Now, in your Bible, it might be that the beloved word is capital B. It should be. Because beloved, who is the beloved? We are accepted in the beloved. It is Jesus Christ. He is the beloved one by God. Matthew 3, 17, at Jesus' baptism, God says to Jesus, he says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And when we are accepted in the beloved, when we are accepted into, placed into Christ, guess what? We then also are beloved. Isn't that awesome? So we are in the beloved, therefore we are beloved by God because of Christ. Now notice this too, verse 6, it says he made us accepted. We didn't make ourselves acceptable. We were not acceptable to God. He made us acceptable. We were made acceptable even when we were dead in our sins. Romans 5, 8, Ephesians 2, 5. Jump ahead one chapter to Ephesians 2, 13. It picks up on this theme as well. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, not accepted, you're way out over there somewhere, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
We have been made acceptable. We who on our own are filthy and unacceptable are made acceptable to God because we have been placed by God in the beloved one, Jesus Christ. We have been chosen to be in the beloved one, Jesus Christ. Isn't it good to feel accepted? To know that in Christ we are accepted. Accepted by the grace of God when we did not deserve it one bit. Let me show you another glorious truth here. Number five, election and predestination are entirely by God's grace. Ephesians 1 verse 4, it says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So that shows us when God chose us. He chose us before the foundation of the world. How many of us existed at that time? Nobody. Not one person. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That was it. And so he chose us in him. We were chosen long before we did anything to earn or to diminish his kindness. There was nothing. I couldn't do anything because I wasn't around yet. It was a long time off before I was around. In Romans 9, Jacob and Esau illustrate this. Paul tells us about Jacob and Esau. The younger Jacob was chosen by God through election, the Bible says, before they were even born. Before they were born, God says, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. In Romans 9, 15, and 16, just following that section, God continues. He had actually told Moses this earlier in Scripture, and he continues now. He says, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. It's not us, it's God's mercy that chose us. Then you got a verse like Revelation 17, 8. I mentioned this last week, but we didn't go into detail that much. Revelation 17, 8 says that the names were written in the book of life, that book of life that if your name is in, in there, you're in. If it's not in there, you're out. The names were written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. Your name was written before your parents even know knew who your name, what your name was going to be. Realize that? God wrote your name in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. The roster of the church was established before time began, according to that verse. Your favorite football team hasn't a clue who's going to be on their roster next season. But God, from before the foundation of the world, knew exactly who would make up the roster of his church. He ordained it to be that way. That's the power of God. That's a wonderful thing. Why does that matter? Why does it matter that God chose us before the foundation of the world? Here's why it matters. Because election and salvation is entirely a gift of God's grace. Entirely a gift of God's grace. You did nothing to earn it. Not one thing to earn it. Because you weren't even around when God chose you. Grace is a gift, right? the unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor of God on you. Warren Wiersbe says, we are chosen in Christ, not in ourselves. It's grace. It has to be grace. There was no spark within you to get it, no ability to earn it. There was not even in you the desire for it. No one seeks after God, according to Romans 3. You didn't even desire it, and yet God in his grace. You know, that's the pervasiveness and total depravity that sin causes. Because not only did you not earn it, not only did you have no ability for it, you didn't even want it. That's how much sin pervades every 
portion of our being. 2 Timothy 1.9, God says this, he has saved us, or Paul says this about God, he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus when? Before time began. You weren't around when God determined to set his love on you. It is an act entirely of his grace. We owe it all to him. All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ our King. We were not chosen. Got to get this into our heads. We were not chosen because of our goodness. We were chosen because of God's goodness. It's the only reason. Now, some will say, and I've heard, I've heard this argument many times and have believed it myself in years past. Some will say that the election of God for us, that God's election is based on foreknowledge. That God has looked into the future, seen that you would believe in him, and therefore then he chose you. You ever heard that? You know what I'm talking about. It's called the foreknowledge argument. I don't think that is accurate. And I have four reasons why it's not accurate. I'll give you three of them today. You have to ask me for the other one privately. Number one, the first reason I don't believe the foreknowledge argument where God looks into the future, sees what you're going to do, and therefore has chosen you. This is why I don't believe that is, that is true. One, no verse in Scripture describes that process. Not one. You will not find that process described in Scripture. This is an argument from silence. We take a flying leap from a verse like 1 Peter 1 that says we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And we take a flying leap from the word foreknowledge to this idea that God in eternity past looked into eternity future, saw that you were going to do that, and so he did this. Not described. We've inserted that idea into that word foreknowledge. So that's the first reason I don't believe that is true. Scripture does not describe the process. Number two, the second reason, that's not even what the Greek word foreknowledge even means. And this is important. What does the word foreknowledge mean? The Greek word for foreknowledge, prognosko, and its offshoots are only used a handful of times in the New Testament. Four times it is translated foreknowledge or foreknown. One time it is translated foreordained. All right? The word prognosko that's, that's translated foreknowledge most often means to know beforehand. What does God know beforehand? Everything. All things. All events. All people. But when the word for God, the word for foreknowledge here is used of God foreknowing, it is always used in his foreknowledge of people, not of events. His foreknowledge of people. I'll show you. 1 Peter 1, 2. The believers Peter is writing to, he says, are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. So he's talking about people that are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Acts 2.23 actually talks about Christ, saying him, being Christ, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. So he's talking about Christ being delivered, right? He's talking about a person. The same is true in Romans 8.29, where whom he foreknew, he predestined, talking about people. 11, Romans 11.2, same thing. In 1 Peter 1.20, it says he, meaning Christ, was foreordained. Same word that carries with it this meaning of being foreordained. So foreordained instead of foreknown. So we see here in these scriptures that foreknowledge is a foreknowing, possibly even a foreordaining of people. God is referring to people in this instance. So we have to ask ourselves, okay, if God foreknows people, what does it mean in scripture to know someone? It's a valid question, right? 
What does it mean in Scripture to know someone? To know someone in Scripture refers to an intimate relationship with that person. Not a knowledge of everything that they're going to do, but an intimate knowledge, an intimate relationship with that person. While you're turning in your Bibles to Jeremiah 1 verse 5, let me draw your attention to Genesis 4.25. Go in your Bibles to Gen- Jeremiah 1.5. And while you're doing that, listen to Genesis 4.25. It says that Adam knew his wife and she conceived. What are we talking about there? Adam knew his wife. He knew everything that she was going to do in her future. No, he knew his wife in a very intimate, personal relationship. Now look at Jeremiah 1.5. God says to Jeremiah in his call to be a prophet, he says to Jeremiah, before I informed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. God did not just know what Jeremiah was going to do, He foreknew Jeremiah. See that first part of that verse? I formed you in the womb. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I know you before I formed you. There's a relationship there that God is saying, I have a relationship with you, Jeremiah, before Jeremiah was even Jeremiah. He knew Jeremiah and he foreordained that he was going to be a prophet. See the last part of the verse? I ordained you a prophet to the nations. See, God is not sitting there saying, "Uh, Jeremiah, I looked into the future and I saw that you wanted to be a prophet. And so I am going to make you a prophet. No, God said, Jeremiah, you're going to be a prophet. And Jeremiah was what? A prophet. You do not stand in the way of the will of God. God foreordained Jeremiah's course in his life. He foreknew him as a person and foreordained his course in life. Show you a few more of these. We're talking about why it matters that to know someone in Scripture is an intimate relationship. Amos 3.2 speaks of God only knowing Israel. He says, of all the nations, you only have I known. Did God not know there were other nations? Did he not know anybody else existed? No, he's saying, of you, out of all the nations, I have a personal, intimate, special relationship with you that I don't have with everyone else. So when God says he knows Israel... He's saying there's a personal relationship there, a love for them that he doesn't have for everyone else. And then in the New Testament, we see Matthew 7, 23. To the false professors of salvation, Jesus said to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Good job, Alan. I never knew you. What is Jesus saying? He didn't know who they were. He didn't know what they were gonna do. He didn't know they existed. No, he's not saying that. He's saying he never had a knowing, loving relationship with them. Not now, not ever. To know someone in Scripture is to have a close, loving relationship with them. God's foreknowing then of a person is his predetermination to know them closely in a loving relationship. He says, I have foreknown you. I have predetermined to have a relationship with you. God knows everything that you will do. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying he doesn't. But that's not the cause of him choosing you. When God foreknows you, he is not choosing you because of what you will do. He is predetermining to set his love on you in a close relationship. Hence, 
He chose you before the foundation of the world to be in Christ, to be accepted in the beloved, to be adopted into his family. He has chosen you before the foundation of the world. That goes into my third reason why I don't believe the foreknowledge argument is accurate, accurate, and that's this. Number three, if God, and you follow my logic here, if God in eternity past looks down the corridors of time and sees that you are going to choose him and he in return chooses you, grace is destroyed. Why? Because you earned it. God said, oh, I see what you're going to do, and because you're going to do that, I'm going to do this. That's not grace. That's a reward from God for picking the right option. It destroys, for by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God didn't pick you because you initiated it. If he did, you get the credit, or at least part of it. At least part of it. See, then your salvation is not of grace. There would be reason for you to glory in yourself. God chose me because he saw I was going to choose him. You can't justify that with scripture. Why? 1 John 4.19. 1 John 4.19. We love him because... He first loved us. We love him because he first loved. He was the cause of our love. It does not say he loves us because we first loved him. Or he loves us because he saw down the corridors of time that we were going to love him. Therefore, that's not what scripture says. It says we love him. God is the initiator. We are the responder. And that's where this whole thing comes together. God's grace and election should cause humility in us, not pride. Humility in us, why? Because we don't go around like a bratty four-year-old saying, God chose me, God chose me. No, you say, God chose me? Me? And then once you understand the grace of God, you say, God chose me. For his purpose, by his grace, God chose me. That's what scripture tells me. He chose me. God in his abundant love, in his grace, he chose me and he saved me in Christ. Even though there was nothing within me that deserved it. Nothing within me that earned to be chosen or to be saved. And that concept drives us to our knees in praise and thanks and glory to God. All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ, our King. It's grace. It's all of grace. Number six, election and predestination are according to the good pleasure of God's will. We see that straight from the text in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, it says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. What is the good pleasure of God's will? It is this, God can do things simply because it is his pleasure to do so. That's true. God can do things simply because it is his pleasure to do so. God does as he pleases. Don't take my word for it. Look at scripture. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135.6, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deep places. What gives him the right to do whatever he pleases to do? Creation. He created us. 
He owns us. He's in control. If God cannot do what God pleases, he's not God. But he can, therefore, he is. He is God. So you say, okay, but there's all these questions that come to mind. Understood. That's, that's very true. Why did he choose us? Oh, why did he choose us? Why, why this process like that? Well, notice verse 4. It says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He chose us that we would be holy and without blame before him. You are not chosen, saved, and secured to then live however you want to. Don't go all libertarian. You were chosen, saved, and secured to live holy before God because it is his good pleasure that you do so. It's the reason he gives us. And how can we live holy before God only and only, and then again only, in Christ? 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We're only righteous in Christ. You say, well, then why does he predestine us? Do you really believe? People ask that. Do you really believe God predestined us? Absolutely. Why? It says right there he did. I can't argue with that. It says right there he did. Verse 5 and verse 11 and Romans 8 and other places. Why though? Why, why would he do that? Notice verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. We are predestined by God to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. When you are saved, you are made a child of God. Someone who was a child of wrath, someone who was a child of the devil, a child of this world, God in his mercy makes us a child of his. John 1, 12 and 13, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God did it. Praise him for that. God did it. We are adopted by God into a relationship with God in Christ. Now, you, another question you might ask, well, why did he do it by sovereign choice? Why all of a sudden do we see this, all this sovereignty of God and that he just decides what he's going to do? Why would he do things that well, that way? Verse five, according to the good pleasure of his will. You've got to settle on that. According to the good pleasure of his will. The New American Standard Bible interprets that as according to the kind intention of his will. Remember last week we said he predestines us how? In love. God is no monster. He does it out of love. And here he does it according to the kind intention of his will. Verse 6 says that he does it to the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 12 and 14 also say that he does these things to the praise of his glory. Why does he choose to do it by sovereign choice? According to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace. But another question might come up. Well, why did he choose some and not others? Why does he choose some and not others? According to the good pleasure of his will and to the praise of his glory. That's the answer we're given. Why me and not somebody else? According to the good pleasure of his will and to the praise of his glory. It's a positive thing. Well, why didn't he just choose everyone? Why didn't he just choose everyone? Please remember, 
God is not just limited to showing his love, mercy, and grace through mankind. But God also through mankind shows his justice and his wrath. We cannot say that God is love only. That is one of his attributes, and he is love. Don't get me wrong. But throughout scripture, you also see the justice and the wrath of God. And God as creator can choose to show love through what he creates, and he can also choose to show his other attributes through what he creates, the justice and his wrath. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God's love is always perfect, and so is God's wrath and his justice, always perfect. Don't box God into a corner and say he can only do one thing. God is God. He can do as he pleases. Now, I know that's hard for some people to understand different circumstances and things in life, and you say, that just just rubs against me the wrong way. I understand that. But please remember that God is never arbitrary. He does not choose on a whim. We, we saw in the story of Esther, right? All, all the things that God lined up in the story of Esther, that he was invisible, yet he was always intentional. Always had a plan, always had a reason. And while there is no reason in us why he would choose us, there is always reason in him. And we have to believe that. Though we may not know that until glory. We might not know that reason until we get to heaven, but there is always reason in God. So here's my question to you. Do you trust the good pleasure of his will? He says he does these things as spiritual blessings to us according to the good pleasure of his will. Do you trust the good pleasure of his will? Do you trust that he's God and he can do as he pleases? Is the grace and goodness of God still grace and goodness even when it rubs against our preconceived notions of fairness and equality? Is he still good, even if we can't quite figure it out or it doesn't make sense to us, or it's not how we would do it or we would want it to be done? Is he still good? Yes. Be careful here because I had two people contact me this week about this. We need to be careful that we don't Americanize our theology. Say, what do you mean? Don't Americanize your theology. God is not the president of a democratic republic. He is not. He does not put things to a vote. What does everybody think? How should this go? God is a king who rules absolutely. Let him do that because it's who he is. And when he rules absolutely, he always rules correctly. I think sometimes this idea of election rubs against our Americanized theology of fairness and equality and everybody gets a fair shot and can live the American dream. God is God. He does as he pleases. And he has pleased to do it this way according to the authority of Scripture that he has revealed to us. And that should not devalue our view of God. It should elevate our view of God. Because now I come and I say, well, it's not me. It's you, God. You did it. And you did it your way. And I praise God for you. No, I might have wanted it a different way. I might have wanted to do it some other way or or think you should do it another way. But God, I got to come to this and say, you are God. And I let you be God. That elevates our view of God. Is God big enough to you that you can trust that what he says he has done in scripture is what he has done? That he knows what he is doing and that he has done it for a reason? Or do you think he needs your advice? Nebuchadnezzar, who was kind of a goofy character, 
in Daniel 4.35 says this, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Paul picks up on that theme in Romans 9, verses 20 to 21. And he says, but indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and one for dishonor? Let God be God. Let God be God because the good pleasure of God's will is never wrong. Please understand that the good pleasure of God's will is never wrong. Number seven, election and predestination do not eliminate our human responsibility. Hopefully there is a palpable sigh of relief because some of you thought I would never get to this. Here it is. Election and predestination, God's sovereignty and election and predestination do not eliminate our human responsibility. Most people, when they discuss these topics, will at some point come to the conclusion that, well, we just can't understand it all. We just, we just can't wrap our minds around it. And while I think that is true to an extent, it is not true entirely. Don't use that as a cop-out to stop wrestling with Scripture. What do I mean? Ephesians 1.9 says that he has made known to us the mystery of his will. Scripture has been given to us for what purpose? To reveal the truth to us, to reveal God to us. So don't cop out and say, well, I just can't understand any of it, so I'm not even going to try. No, no, no. Scripture has been given to us. And I think we have enough revealed Scripture to give us a good grasp of election, of predestination, of salvation, the calling of God, so on and so forth. So I encourage you, don't dismiss all that has been revealed to us and that we can understand because of a few parts that we may not understand. You with me on that? Does that make sense? Scripture is given to us for our understanding. He has given us all we need for life and godliness. If there is now any part of God's sovereignty and in election and predestination that we do not fully understand and fully resolve, it is this right here, point number seven. God's sovereignty and election and predestination does not eliminate my human responsibility to believe in Christ. So we've seen that God's sovereignty and salvation is clearly taught in Scripture. It's all over the place. We also see that we have a human responsibility to respond to God in salvation and the gospel. That is also clearly taught in Scripture. Show you a few. Acts 16.31, Paul told the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and what? You will be saved. He says, believe. Great verse for this is John 3.18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed. Does that sound like responsibility to believe? It does to me. You have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, therefore you are condemned. So there's responsibility to believe. Ephesians 1.12, our text here, tells us that we have trusted in Christ. To be saved, you must believe in Christ. That is your responsibility to believe. So on one hand, God ordains everything regarding your salvation, clear as day in Scripture. And on the other hand, you are responsible to believe. How do we resolve that? Because it sounds like two contradictory statements, doesn't it? How do I, what do I do with those? I don't know how to resolve them. But I also know this. I don't have to. 
I don't have to. God's sovereignty and salvation is clearly taught in Scripture. Human responsibility to believe is clearly taught in Scripture. That is God's job to harmonize them, not mine. They're like parallel railroad tracks, right? The train of salvation is rolling down the track, and if you take one track out, guess what happens? It's done. Take the other track out, guess what happens? It's done. If you try to move the tracks close together and come up with some compromise in the middle, what happens? It's done. Both railroad tracks are needed, the divine sovereignty of God and salvation and the human responsibility that we have to believe. J.I. Packer, a terrific theologian of yesteryear, in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, tells us a little story about C.H. Spurgeon. He says, C.H. Spurgeon was once asked if he could reconcile these two truths together, divine sovereignty, human responsibility. Spurgeon said, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. Friends, Packer says? Yes, friends. This is the point that we have to grasp. In the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They are not uneasy neighbors. They are not in an endless state of cold war with each other. They are friends, and they work together. God works them together. Do I understand that? Somewhat, but not, not entirely. What I do know is this. I cannot dismiss all that Scripture says about God's sovereignty in election and predestination. It would be a careless unfaithfulness to Scripture to just do an end around on it and see you all next week. That would be careless of me. I cannot avoid it. It's all over Scripture. But I also can't dismiss all the calls in Scripture for unbelievers to believe. You must believe. So what do I do? I believe them both. And I live inside the tension that that creates. Do I believe that God's sovereign election and predestination is taught in Scripture and to be believed by us? Absolutely. 100%. You can't get around it. Once you start seeing it, you cannot unsee it. And you start seeing it everywhere. Do I believe that we must believe in Jesus in order to be saved? Absolutely. That's why I preach the gospel. And that's why you are to preach the gospel as well, trusting in the sovereignty of God to work. My prayer is that you would also do the same. Believe both. Not because I do or I said to, but because that is where scripture leads us. My wife asked me at the beginning of the year what my word for the year was. I guess something that's on Facebook or whatever, I don't know. And I said, I don't, I don't have a clue. I don't know what my word for the year is. It's the first day of the year. How am I supposed to know what I'm going to do the rest of the 364 days? But I got it now. I have the word. The word is submission. It's submission. Lord, help us to submit to your word. Submit to your will, not mine. Submit to the Holy Spirit. And live a life that God has for us, trusting that he is in control of my salvation and he is in control of every single thing that I will encounter in my life. God is God and there is no other. Let's pray. Lord, there is a call to action here for us, a call to laying down our defenses against your will a call to trusting the word and you, the God of the word. 
Lord, I pray that you would stir up in our hearts for the sake of your church the faith we need to trust you for salvation, for life, and for eternity. Dear Lord, if your will was ever wrong, you would not be worth trusting. But you have never been wrong. You have never done wrong. Therefore, we trust your will and not our own. 